This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's this video clip that, to me, has become a kind of shorthand for the way Donald Trump walloped American media, catching so many people blithely unaware. It's from 2015, an old episode of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. All I want to say is that anybody uh, well, from the Democratic side of the fence who, who uh, thinks that, who's, who's terrified of the possibility of, of, of President Trump, Better vote, better get active, better get involved, because this man has got some uh, momentum. And this is then-Congressman Keith Ellison talking to a roundtable of guests, including Maggie Haberman from The New York Times. And uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket. Next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Six years later, this clip continues to fascinate me. First, there are the visuals. Ellison's a black man, the only black person in the room, just calmly predicting the future. And then, after everyone laughs, Ellison stands his ground. Hey, you know, George, we had Jesse Ventura in Minnesota win the governorship. Nobody thought he was going to win. I'm telling you, stranger things have happened. I think a lot about whether this could happen again. I wonder how much blame journalists share for the last four years. And I wonder what we're missing again. Now. So I called up Fry Judea to talk about all this. Fry's a journalist and a radio host, but mostly she's one of the sharpest observers of the media I know. I mean, you've said we'll, we'd never be here today, having been through a Trump presidency, if Black and people of color reporters and editors had authority and the roles that would shape stories. But I do wonder in some ways. When the media landscape is so diversified the way it is now, we're not all watching the same, you know, three nightly news broadcasts, for instance. How much can we blame the media for Trump? A lot. And, and it's not even about determining an outcome. It's about giving people the choice to make smart political choices. Fry has been trying to understand why voters make the choices they do for a long time. She's reported from 49 states, covered white supremacy and white nationalism since the 90s. So while Trump's rise surprised a lot of people, Fry is not one of them. But she says even though individuals like her saw Trump coming, the news organizations they worked for had more trouble. Since the election, Fry's taken to Twitter to call out the place she worked 
back when Trump first ran for president, 538. While she was there, she reported on Trump's base, who they were, what they believed, and she got blowback for what she found, especially, she says, from her boss, 538's founder, Nate Silver. I think that he was afraid of me tainting the objectivity of 538 when, in fact, you know, that you cannot unbundle Donald Trump's populism from racial resentment. And I think that he and many other people missed a narrative because they didn't want to see it. Today on the show, post-Trump, are we seeing anything more clearly? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I wonder if you look back at the last four years, like how much blame you put on the media versus the Republican Party. Because I look back and at least I see the press struggling with its role and trying to figure it out and getting it wrong a lot of the time. But I see the Republican Party just outright enabling bad behavior. Yes, and, um, you know, I love journalism or I wouldn't still be doing it, right? But I think that there's a question of, like, who should have known better? So when I look at someone like Kellyanne Conway, who was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick when we were on CNN, she should have known better. And I think she did know better that to unleash the beast of weaponized racial and class resentment would come back to bite us all. And she made a choice. And she's inside the GOP. But Les Moonves also made that choice, you know? So I don't, I, I think it's like on the one hand, on the other hand. It took a lot of people making a lot of choices. Uh, as I like to say, a lot of hands on the knife. Huh. So let's stipulate right here at the top that the press can't take all the blame for delivering us the last four years. But Farai wants you to think more about the kinds of stories people like us tell, whose side we're taking, who were relegating to the margins. I wish I could remember who did this, but someone talked about how, in many ways, the coverage of the past four years was a failure of access journalism. Like, trying to constantly talk to the Spicers and the Conways and the on and on and on taught us a lot less than if we'd actually gone out and talked to Trump voters more consistently and Clinton voters and non-voters. Again, I think I think this idea of only assuming that power lies in the hands of the traditionally powerful has been the kryptonite of American journalism. Hmm. So do you think there's been so much criticism of diner safaris, you know, folks who went out into, quote unquote, real America and sat down at diners with people with Make America Great Again hats and just sort of painted a picture of what was happening there. Do you think there was too little of that or that that wasn't done critically enough? Well, I think that, first of all, um, 
a lot of journalists, like a lot of Americans, don't actually know American history or political science or behavioral economics, all of which I think are critical to understanding the electorate. So there has to be a process of self-education in newsrooms to make sure people have the right context to report on this country. But when I went, for example, to Eastern Ohio, I spent three days there. I could have gotten all the interviews I needed for the piece, theoretically, in about 45 minutes. Hmm. But I wanted to actually sit down with people. I went to their places of work. I I talked to people who, you know, would never make the article. I sat in Republican Party meetings. What did that teach you? It taught me to understand the framework with which people were approaching politics. I had a great respect for the operations of the Trumbull County Republican Party. They were ace organizers. They understood their audience. They mobilized young people. They mobilized older people. The people I interviewed when I was there ranged from 19 to 82 or something. You know, so I think that the idea of a diner safari is not so appealing, but the idea of rooting down, like when I interview people, I just let them talk for like an hour. And then I start asking questions. Hmm. I mean, you've written about how you DM'd with a white nationalist for more than a year. Yeah. And there's something I struggle with, which is how to cover real people when they are pumped full of disinformation. Like, how do you authentically present their voices without laundering their perspective? I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, if you, my articles from 538 from the voters, you know, at one point I, I have a lead character in an article about Trump voters in Eastern Ohio, and I talk about his rhetoric on Mexico. I don't say that's wrong or that's racist. I don't need to. He speaks for himself. When I interviewed Sheriff Joe Arpaio in 2010 for radio documentaries, I didn't say he's wrong or he's racist. I let him speak for himself. And the thing is, Not everyone will be on the truth bus when they read your articles, but I think actually being less judgmental and more exploratory gets people to be more in line with your articles. And I've actually, (laughs) this is actually pretty funny, I've gotten praised by a white nationalist, different one than I was DMing with, who was like, well, I started reading this article and I was mad, and then I realized you actually talked to us. I was like, okay, (laughs) well, sure. Do you worry about that? encouraging these kinds of beliefs in some way? Absolutely. But I worry less about that than not covering it. So I interviewed, you know, very much to that point, I interviewed a woman from the Aryan Nation in the 1990s. And of course, that's no longer around because they murdered people and were sued out of existence in civil court. So I interviewed her by phone and I said at the end, I'm Black. Um, this was, you know, pre, pre-interwebs or at least commercial interwebs. Um, I'm Black, would you have granted me an interview if you knew that? And first she said no, and then she quickly said yes, because for every 10 people who read this, one of them will follow me. Oof. And that was absolutely chilling, but I would rather have a situation where the other nine people know that one of the people will follow her than where we pretend she doesn't exist, which is effectively what most of journalism has done. The place where I think it gets complicated is the place we're at now, where... There are so many conspiracy theories about what happened with the election, stuff that is patently false. And so it just strikes me as a little bit different where when you give air to folks who are saying things that are just wrong about votes being stolen and the Dominion voting machines, 
for some reason, I feel like there's more risk to that, to exposing that. Well, oh, I do I do call it out, but I think um, when I report on white nationalism, as I did in that piece with the, the woman from the Aryan Nation, I'm not I'm not both sidesy. You know, I talk about people being killed. I talk about in in the same article I interviewed a woman who was forced into a child marriage and had to flee for her life from a white supremacist cult. So I think that there's a difference from listening to people in real time who have their own reasons for me interviewing them and presenting it as just as like, tra-la-la, walk in the park. That's not what I do. And so I think that part of it is that you have to synthesize a context around your interviews that makes all of it make sense without being both sidesy. When we come back, why Fry thinks better representation in newsrooms is going to be the key moving forward. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You've written about your time at 538 as really revelatory for you as a reporter. Like you looked back at some moments that you only realized were important in retrospect. You talk about interviewing a woman in Las Vegas about Trump during his candidacy. And she was concerned about it. And she had biracial kids. And, and she was making a comparison through her conversation with you to Trump and the rise of Hitler. And in the end, that was struck from the article. Can you tell that story? And like, because at the time you were like, oh, okay, like, sure, strike that. And then afterwards you're like, huh. <laughs> well, well, yes, very specifically, there's a, a woman in the Las Vegas area where I'd gone out for the final debate to cover that. And she talked about how as someone who worked in a corporate position, she had multiple people in both business and personal settings say that the reason to vote for Donald Trump was uh, to preserve basically the purity of the white race, which you can't get. That's not a dog whistle. That's a frigging, you know, club or an axe. And her husband is Black and Latino, so her daughter is triracial or multi-ethnic. And so we got the first part of this in, but then she said her daughter was doing a unit in high school on the rise of Hitler and basically said, 
I feel like this is happening. How could people believe this again? And so it was struck, and and I know that it may have sounded incendiary to some people. Like, I didn't think it was incendiary, but I was like, I'm not going to fight over this. But what I think it showed that people didn't realize, and some may not realize still, is that there is a battle for the soul of whiteness. There is what I call the call to whiteness, which is white nationalist, white supremacist mobilization. And then there's what I call establishment whiteness, which is the idea that whiteness is neutral, the idea that whiteness is meritocratic, and that it is essentially invisible because it is the standard. And what this woman was doing was acknowledging the call to whiteness through her own personal experience. And I don't think we, including me, paid enough attention. I paid a lot more attention than my writing show to the call to whiteness because I've been covering white nationalists for 25 years. It's interesting the way you're framing that. Because you can see how those two calls to whiteness fed off of each other. There was the one call to one group of people, and then the establishment whiteness sort of nicely kept a lid on things until Trump was president. I mean, essentially, what we think of as mainstream media represents an interest of establishment whiteness, which failed to respond to the supremacist nationalist call to whiteness, which is not objective journalism. It is self-interested elite journalism that makes money. It is not objective. Objectivity has been the self-stated goal of many journalists. Farai says part of why paying attention to what happened over the last four years is so important is because it reveals the way that goal has gotten twisted. I tend to reject the the title of objectivity because I find it so tainted. I I don't disagree with all of what it can be under some circumstances, but fundamentally the reason that objectivity in journalism is a white construct is because it relies on you shedding the self. It's this idea that you're above it all, you're sitting on some little magical cloud and looking down at the people. Well, you know what? I am one of the people. I'm a black woman who grew up in Baltimore. I've seen race, class, and gender affect my life and my family's life, my whole life. And um, so when I interview a white supremacist, as I have for the past 25 years, I don't be like, oh, I'm objective about white supremacy. It's like, no, this is a threat, but these are people. These are my fellow Americans, and I'm going to listen to them. And many people have said recently that Black people and Asian people and all other people are adjectives and white people are a noun. White people are just people. So I also feel like we have to unpack that. There's a just tragic lack of um, attention to whiteness as a subject. And if journalism were truly objective, whiteness would be a bigger subject than blackness or any other race. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is objectivity doesn't mean we all have the same perspective. It's that we know about everyone else's perspectives, respect them, and consider them all. Well, I mean, I guess what I would say is that I reject objectivity because I believe it's impossible. I don't reject the sentiment that leads people to use the phrase objectivity, but I reject it because being in the newsrooms I've been in, white people are not rejecting their whiteness. They just think it doesn't exist. And I don't reject my blackness. And so when I go into a situation where I'm interviewing people who use racial resentment as a tool, I say to myself, how can I de-bias my own reporting process? I ask myself a critical question so that I can do my job well, which is fairness, not objectivity. I say, how can I do an unbiased interview with my subject? To Farai, what's funny about her experience at 538 is that as a journalistic outfit, 
538 was committed to understanding politics through data. But looking back, she questions if their understanding of data went deep enough. I tried to present stories on the rise of racial resentment as voter indicator time and time again at 538. And I was told, well, there's no data to support it. There is. It's historical data. And I think that places like 538 specialize in what I call the quant of the now now, which is like, what are polls? But if you look at the facts, listen to this fact, the only modern politicians who are not from the major two parties to have gotten electoral college wins were both segregationists. Hmm. That's data, you know? Right. But it's data from far out. And so it was discounted. Yeah. But why was it discounted? I mean, we I, I think it was discounted because we thought we were better than the past. And, and that is a cultural bias in and of itself. Vrai says there is a way to correct for that cultural bias, but it requires rethinking who decides what a story is. Plenty of journalists have stories like hers about feeling unheard in their newsrooms. And that won't change until the newsrooms themselves do. One thing that has to happen in America is better funding of journalists of color starting their own enterprises and women, because where the money has flowed determines the shape of the media. The reality is, like, you know, every bro who reaches a certain point can get amply funded to do whatever they want. And until women and people of color get that same thing, media won't change. I will say, um, although it's self-serving, it's accurate, that I, I pretty much called all of this. You know, my piece in 2016 talks about the weaponization of infiltration and weaponization of uh, white supremacy and nationalism in government and the fact that it was a clear and present danger. This is not because I'm a genius. It's because I do a lot of pattern recognition based on what I know about race, class, and politics. I had to learn pattern recognition of this type in order to survive as a Black woman in America. It doesn't mean that other people can't learn it. In fact, one of the people who at 538, um, after I was there, found reporting on race suppressed is a white man. But this is survival for me. People I know died for liberation in this country and to be citizens. And so I think that we can't trivialize the stakes here. And I think that if journalism wants to be better, it could learn from some of the pattern recognition that people of color and immigrants have to do simply to survive in this country. And instead of that being viewed with suspicion in the newsroom, it could be respected. Fred Judea, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mary. Fred Judea is the host of Our Body Politic. It's a radio show. You can also catch it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Davis Land. We are helped along every day by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I am Mary Harris. I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.